Hello, and I believe we are now live. Let's check. Yeah, there we are. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions, uh, this time based on what you put in the comment section. And somebody suggested that I actually get that back in play where I um, look to and tell you guys, hey, put, put your questions in the comment section of my videos. Um, so we can do that. Let's go ahead and switch over so we can see the comments here as they're coming up on stream. All right. Um, yeah, I love these critically Okay, great, thank you. Yes, I'm sessionable. Yes, well-fed, well-rested. <laughs> <laughs> not i was actually up uh you guys might find this funny i am really really digging um this game called far cry 5 <laughs> and if any of you know what far cry 5 is all about you might understand why i'm having fun playing this game uh it's um it's definitely been um a, a great way into the um into the video game uh, first-person shooter world. I've been having a lot of fun with that lately, so I was actually up a little late last night uh, doing that, playing that game. All right. Mm. Excuse me. Okay, so hey, happy Sunday, everybody. Um, all right, so let me pull up my um, comments queue here. So that I can just track with you guys as you're asking me questions. There we go. I got that all across the screen. I don't necessarily need to see my smiling face as we're going, but I do need to see your questions. Now, on the questions for this time, you know, it's only been the 300 and some odd episodes that I've finally figured this out. But when we're live like this, if you could, when you put questions in the comments um, box there, um, put a little at Chris Shelton or something in front of it so that I can, um, so it stands out to me that that's a question. And of course, all super chat comments and questions will be uh, read as soon as, as rapidly as I can get to them as we're going here. So um, I will try to uh, keep up with all of this as we go. So um, Gurror asks already, since we're doing uh, Q&A, let's get to it. Gurror asks, hey, Chris, have you thought of doing maybe a deep dive into Danny Masterson? There is a ton of interest, but I don't think people understand the correlation with Scientology. Um, yeah, we've done some talks about Danny Masterson on my Critical Conversation show, but you're right. That probably should be um, maybe just a whole podcast all by itself is what the hell with this case who are the players all that I, i've referred people mostly over to tony ortega's reporting because it's been so good and it's so detailed i mean he has provided all the all the little dips of the case from the beginning but i could put all that together uh and sort of summarize and and lay out the track of that that's a that's a good idea i'll, I'll take a look at that as a podcast um Okay, how can, oh, here we go. All right, Henny. Um, how can, hey, Henny. <laughs> how can teachers and parents implement critical thinking in school and any ideas on what might give children the ability to use these skills? Yeah, I think that um, they, there are people who are making very serious efforts at implementing critical thinking or trying to come up with ways to cleverly, um, you know, correctly teach critical thinking skills at all levels from, from first grade forward. How do we do it? And clearly you would like, I think, you would like a standardized curriculum that walks a person gradually step by step by step as they progress through the years of schooling that we've set up as our public schooling standard. They have certain skills that they are required to demonstrate competence in, excuse me, in regards to critical thinking. For example, like right away, like early on, you would just want stories or, um, you know, examples or pictures or something for young, young, young kids of um, how they might uh, oh, thank you, Gurror, for that super chat. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm just thinking lots of examples, lots of stories, lots of, um, you know, very, very uh, specific uh, examples that the kids might be able to take and apply to themselves 
uh, simple, easy to understand stuff, but built around the idea of noticing in, you know, the, the what stands out, the where's Waldo is noticing the thing you're looking for first, you know, observational skills, um, noticing, you know, things that stand out, things that are different, you know, and similar and stuff like that. And then teaching about classes of things and then, you know, moving on from there. I mean, this is all, you know, fairly s simple stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, exactly. Shimoda says, I fear politicians don't want critical thinking taught in schools because they rely on a lack of it to manipulate the population. I think there might be some degree of truth to that, Shimoda, but I think the actual case is that when you start looking into, and I have, um, what it takes to put a curricula together for a nation, <laughs> you find out really fast that it doesn't work that way at all and that uh, education is controlled at the local level far more than it's controlled at the federal level there are certain standards and guidelines that are that are demanded by the by the federal government in order to receive grant money but they can't really do a whole lot to direct exactly precisely what your kids are taught and this is very very much up to school boards that's why there's all this controversy with school boards lately and stuff and i'm not i'm not any kind of expert on that i've been sort of watching it from the sides but it's been pretty disconcerting to see how reactionary parents can be and how how that reactions those reactions can be steeped in in very deep ignorance as influenced by politicians so there's a lot of noise right now around the, the, the subject of education. I think it wasn't at Virginia that just had their governor race that was pretty much all around that, con you know, the, that problem and freaking parents out over that. But, the, but, when you, but if you go on a mission and really start trying to figure out how to implement, let's say, critical thinking, how do you teach it? What do you do? How do you put a curriculum together? And there are people who have done it. There are curricula, there are textbooks, there are, there are student aides, there are um, lots and lots of work has been done on this, actually, by very serious people. But you try to get that work implemented and you run into the kind of ignorance and nonsense from parents, from school board, from school board members, from school administrators. Who, and these are the hurdles you have to jump over and you unfortunately end up having to do it practically on a district by district basis in order to implement this stuff. You know, and, and you imagine trying to get this done on a nationwide level and it becomes a very big problem. So, um, so yeah, there is the conspiratorial aspect of it, Shimoda, that I wanted to, to acknowledge. But I wanted to also point out that the logistics and the actual just implementation of it, because our system is so disparate, it's so different. Uh, across all of our states, you know, uh, much less across the country. Anyway, that it's um, it's a real challenge to to figure that out, and it so much of it relies on the skill and caring of the teachers. You know, is really what it comes down to, because you can offer a curriculum, you can offer textbooks and student aids and all that, but if the teachers themselves aren't behind it and aren't passionate about it, it tends to fall flat. So we need so much in order to make it succeed. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll use the word allegedly <laughs> often when I do my Danny Masterson uh, podcast. That's funny. Um, okay. Yeah, I wish I would have had critical thinking in school too. And, 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 and But let's be honest, in a, to a degree we did. And we also weren't paying a lot of attention <laughs> You know, and this is why it really is incumbent on the teachers to and the and the people putting the material together to give so many examples to make it so real to the students to really engage them in the in the lessons. I think that in critical thinking is is uh, is as important. Well, as I said, it's like a discipline. It's a practice. You have to work it just like you work martial arts training. And um, and I think we need that kind of level of of attention on it. Uh, okay, let's see here. Catching right up. Oh yeah, the UK has a national curriculum. Yeah, I, the UK is a is a smaller place for one, but two, it's it's kind of got its national scheme together a little bit more when it comes to implementing things on a national level, uh, as opposed to us. That's that's for sure. Okay, Guru Roar, have you ever attended other religious services? If so, what was your impression? Did you see similarities with uh, Scientology or was it very different? Yes, I attended. Oh, hey, Denmark. Glad you're here. 
Um, I have, when I was a teenager, I attended some services in the youth uh, group at the Foursquare Church in uh, Santa Maria, California, where I was going to high school. And uh, I was there to, to try to get girls and also to kind of check out what this was all about. Did prayer, you know, walked around and uh, with, with the pastor, asked lots and lots of questions to the youth pastor. I was one of those inquisitive guys who prided himself on, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to fall for this. I'm going to catch this guy out. And, uh, and I, you know, tried to engage as, as best I could, but I wasn't like a, I, I was a, I considered myself or thought of myself in a, in a Scientology sort of, or reference or context as a teenager. And, um, and so I was, I was kind of playing with it a little bit, batting it around like a little, like a, you know, like maybe a, a cat plays with a ball or something. I was trying to treat it that way when I was going to these things. But then I started kind of trying to take it a little more seriously and, okay, let's really listen and let's see what they're trying to say and let's dig in. And I didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> it didn't really do much for me. Uh, but I still, but it was not at all like Scientology. It was vastly different. I mean, going to a youth group on like a Tuesday or a Thursday night or going to the youth group section or going to the main congregation on Sundays and listening to the pastor drone on and on and looking around and seeing people falling asleep and all that. And I was like, what is this? You know, this is this is not what I kind of had in mind. Extremely boring, you know, very, very boring. Um, tried to listen, tried to kind of, you know, but it was really hard to get to, to engage. So I didn't find it similar to Scientology at all. It was a vastly different experience. Um, and they were much more take it or leave it. Hey, welcome. You know, they were they were, you know, kind of like that. Anyway, yeah. That's my answer on that one, Gurror. Uh, XIN asks, would you teach a class in critical thinking, maybe online? I would. I would need to do the work to put that curriculum together or, or find one or get one set up. Um, yeah, I might do that. Might also, um, maybe I should at some point down the line put a, I, I've, been, I've been thinking about a couple of um, online courses I might try to put together. One on, you know, avoiding destructive cults or coercive control. Because uh, it's not just in cult situations that comes up, but of course maybe a, an online course of how to how to stay out of a cult or you know something like that might be uh, useful, and that of course would involve a lot of critical thinking skills. Um, and then I then a critical thinking course. Yeah, I might I might try to put some online stuff together in the future on that. Okay, preacher eleven thirty eight asks. Thank you for the super chat question. Do you know why Hubbard originally let missions be run more loosely, but then decided to smash the mission network? Yeah, the idea was to expand Scientology, and originally in the nineteen sixties, when the franchise system was kind of invented, I believe it was in the sixties, maybe in the uh, late fifties. When the franchise system was set up, there were not that many churches of Scientology around the world. You know, Hubbard had set up something in Dublin, in the UK, I think in London. Um, there was, uh, I think, an org set up by an auditor out in Hawaii, in Washington, in Seattle. There was an org in D.C., a little set up in Phoenix, um, and that was about it. I mean, maybe something over in Sydney. Not, not a lot going on, right? Not, not, it was not really very international in scope, not very big, but Hubbard was trying to grow it. And so when you empower people, I mean, Hubbard knew that when you give people power and, and, and freedom to you know, do what they want to do, and Scientology had not yet, by the time this was happening, Scientology had not yet set up its super controlling, you know, hierarchy and, stru and organizational structure yet. It was very loosey-goosey, and it was Hubbard kind of sort of running things, kind of dictating from St. Hill what to do, and he'd set up this kind of telex system with the orgs, which was the latest and greatest communication system. But he needed more organizations is the point I'm trying to make, and the way to do that was to grow them quickly, and that meant empowering people to grow Scientology in their area, which with a franchise. So yeah, it's yours, baby, you run with it. But that means you're also assuming all the risk, right? It's your baby. But that means if it fails, it's on you. Uh, you know, I've given you direction, Hubbard would say, I've given you, you know, this advice and all that. 
And so Scientology grew rapidly because these were people who believed in Scientology and could market it and could sell it and could get people interested. And these are the kind of people who grew missions that ended up succeeding. And this became a huge endeavor in the 1970s when certain mission holders decided to start running more than one mission or more than one franchise. And so you had the Southern California network and you had, that was called Scientology Coordinated Services, by the way, SCS. That's where my father and my mom got involved at the Pasadena Mission, which then became an org later. Um, there were uh, there was a mission network up in the Bay Area. There was um, the Cosmod, the Church of Scientology Mission of uh, Davis or something, I think, um, was uh, was a, a thing up in the Bay Area where there was a there was a one or two or three mission holders that had a lot of a lot of cloud, a lot of missions, and they grew these things because they ran them like little businesses. They recognized the business model and they used it. And they took advantage of it and they and they played that up, and they were quite good at it. They were better administrators than L. Ron Hubbard ever was. And so they took his system and they basically ran with it and did better than he did. And he didn't like that. And so basically the, um, and the, the orgs were jealous. The Sea Org was jealous. Hubbard was jealous. And Hubbard was basically using the mission money, the franchise money that was coming up, in order to pay Scientology's legal bills, the 10% income from the missions that was going up to um, L. Ron Hubbard's coffers directly basically were being used to run Scientology's legal fund and when the um and that that the 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 dial kind of went up to 11 after the FBI raided Scientology um in 1977 and they had legal bills like you wouldn't believe this was when Mary Sue and and the 11 other Scientologists were going to jail for Operation Snow White so uh wrap this question up um they needed more money and that's why the missions got squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed out of existence right because that's how that's hubbard's uh sort of dementia and miscavige's sadism and a lot of other factors played into that the jealousy that existed at all levels for the success that these franchises had um, when the orgs could not succeed that way, all of that came together in this sort of perfect storm to destroy the whole thing. And that's what ended up happening. Okay. Wow. Estonia. All right. Uh, okay. Nobody home here. In Scientology, the first axiom states, life is basically a static. Definition. Life static has no mask, no motion, no wavelength, no locations in space or time. What? Nothing? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Here's the, here's the, here's the. <laughs> Here's the ridiculousness of Scientology. And I'm I'm really not kidding. I I, I this is totally serious. Um axioms are self-evident truths upon which a science or 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 subject are based, okay? They're the assumptions we make are true in order for this subject to make sense. In geometry, for example, an axiom is that the shortest distance between two points in any space is a straight line. That's an axiom of geometry. It's really hard to prove that it's always true. So we sort of make it an axiom and just say, hey, look, this is we're just going to assume this is always true in this logic system we've created called geometry. Same thing applies in Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard wrote a ton of axioms for Scientology and for Dianetics. And these were the self-evident truths upon which Scientology is built. And axiom one is life is basically a static. And static means it does not exist in the in in the in the context or in the in, from the viewpoint of uh, a material existence. It's a thing that exists, and yet it doesn't exist in any physical way. It's it's not dependent upon matter, energy, space, or time in order to exist. That is what a static is in Scientology. In other words, it all comes down to nothing. <laughs> and Hubbard actually posits that that nothing is a something. But at the end of the day, Scientology really is all about nothing. <laughs> and I just think that's hilarious. I, I probably I probably think that's funnier than it really is, but... Um, 
I just I just can't I, I just can't uh, get over how how hilarious that is to me that at the end of the day there's nothing there <laughs> literally uh, because that is what a thetan is it is the it is the primary assumption on which all of Scientology is built in other words it is the article of faith that all Scientologists must subscribe to and they don't think they don't tell themselves that they are believing it on faith. They think that this is all science-based, and this is based on observation and experimentation and research, and it's not. It's not at all. So there you go. Uh, Shimoda asks, since you and Steve Hassan have pointed out the cult-like aspects of Trump, etc., I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the Brexit followers in the UK, cultish red flags. Um, no, I don't see a cult there, Shimoda, but what I do see is political propaganda, ideological propaganda, and... Um, you know, the Cambridge Analytica influence, the mass media influence, the scaremongering and fear-mongering that was used. Um, I think all of that is what helped shape that mindset in the same way that Trump's group was initially, you know, being run that way, too. Um, comparisons exist, but, you know, the thing about the Brexit people... Now, again, I have to also comment on this. I have to say straight away... I'm not well steeped in it. I'm not on social media on this. I haven't gone into the forums or seen, you know, exactly what these guys are saying. So this is a this is a distant impression. Okay, I'm not. I I haven't steeped myself in Brexit the same way I did QAnon. Let's say where QAnon it definitely has some online culty stuff going on, as we've gone over in my podcasts on that. But with Brexit, I just see that as a kind of an ideological campaign that got way out of hand. And um, and unfortunately, a whole bunch of people got, you know, uh, really got the shit scared out of them about immigrants and, you know, all that other crap that, that we get into with our in-group, out-group stuff. Um, so, yeah, red flags for sure. Cultic influences or, or certain coercive methods being used in order to influence people. Yeah, absolutely. But... Um, but there's, you know, but it's all playing on very primal basic fears we have, fears of the other, you know, especially when the other looks so different from us. And the British are, are horrible about that in, in, in some ways, culturally speaking. I'm not talking about any individual here, but, you know, as a culture, the, the Brits have a long and, you know, uh, history of oppressing other cultures. And then when they start, you know, so they're a little, you know, got that. Got that historical sensitivity to that going on a little bit there. But um, but that's not some psychological evaluation of every single person in the UK. I'm just saying, you know, commenting on it culturally. Probably in the same way the U.S. is so overly sensitive on this stuff, you know. It's because we were so bad uh, for so many years. Uh, okay. Hope that I hope that was a useful answer, Shimoda. Uh, DJ Better, how did you survive the RPF mentally? I think I would have lost my mind and been in constant trouble. You know, the RPF's RPF. Yeah, yeah, uh, DJ, I do know. Um, the thing that helped me get through the RPF, there were two things that helped me. Um, one was um, having a goal, having a purpose to get through it, which was to get back to my wife. That was my, that was my primary motivator to get through that program was there was somebody that I loved, that I wanted to see, that I wanted to get back to. This is my first wife, not my current wife, my, my ex-wife, uh, who's still in Scientology and still in the Sea Org as far as I know. But I, I was determined to, um, you know, to make up for what I had done and get back into her good graces and get back into that relationship and make that go. And I felt really horrible about what I had done and all that. So, um, so there was that factor that kind of kept me going. And the other thing was the mission, you know, the, 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 and my integrity. I said I was going to do something, so I'm going to do it. You know, I agreed to do this, so I'm going to do it. Um, the, the 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 mission also you know the save the planet thing i mean when i i i i've said it over and over again i'll just kind of keep saying it you know that i really believed it i i was all in and i really really believed that what we were doing was important and was going to matter and was going to make a difference in fact i thought it was the only thing that was going to make a difference so even if i had to endure this rpf program i knew i could get through it because at the other end was, you know, uh, 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 this woman and a life of, of, of servitude, but a life dedicated to a mission that mattered. 
you know, my life was going to have some substantial meaning as a result of what I was doing, even though it was so hard and so rough. And I didn't particularly think about the roughness as something, um, I didn't really think about it a lot. I just kind of endured it. You know, you just kind of put your head down and go, okay, we just got to get through this. We just got to get through this. We're just going to get through this. And, um, and you just keep telling yourself that and day by day, you know, sometimes the first month was the roughest and the, and that was rough. Cause that was where I was literally like, you know, we would walk around, rock around, run around the building. And at first we were doing cleaning. My, the unit I was in was doing cleaning and stuff. And I was literally sitting there dusting walls with tears coming down my, I mean, that was a mess. I was a wreck. And I just, you know, learned in that first month how to endure that, how to get through that, how to suck it up basically. You know, um, and at a level that I had never had to learn how to suck it up before. And I was already in the Sea Org where sucking it up was a way of life. So it's kind of interesting, actually, um, looking back on that. It was, you know, in some ways I look back and I'm like, God damn, I really did that. <laughs> you know, because I wouldn't put up with that shit for a microsecond now. No one would ever be able to do something like that to me willingly now. You'd have to put a gun to my head. Uh, but at the time, you know, I was putting the gun to my head myself. Okay, um, seven is fine. Thank you for asking, MP Marie. Uh, all right, let's go f see here. We got some other questions. I'm ca I'm falling behind. Let me see if I can catch up. Um, Xion, uh, question. Yesterday was World Kindness Day. I hope someone was kind to you and that you were kind to someone. And where were you kind to yourself too? Aw. Um, yeah, kindness day. You know what I am digging, I am having the most fun watching is um, Ted Lasso. And if any of you guys have watched any Ted Lasso, you know immediately what I'm talking about. Um, it is a show built around kindness as a, as a character feature, you know. Um, and I am so inspired by that show. It, it's it, in the same way I'm inspired by like Mr. Rogers and kindness is king. I, 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 ugh, I just hate myself when I, when I forget that and I get mean and vicious with people. But, um, fortunately I don't do that too often anymore. I'm, I am slowly learning to curb my online passions, but, um, yeah, I was kind to Seven and Melissa and vice versa. Because uh, I was home all day yesterday. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, Gur Roar. Okay, I love science fiction. I understand Hubbard wrote a lot of it. Is any of it actually good? Any recommendations or is it all trash? Well, you know, here's the thing. Fiction work is all a matter of opinion. And there are people who truly, honestly love L. Ron Hubbard's fiction. They love some of his fiction. Uh, or there are people who, you know, don't like it because of the quality of it. And then there are people who don't like it, touched on the principle that L. Ron Hubbard was a dick. And I'm not going to like anything he ever put out. I will say that... Um, uh, in terms of science fiction, I didn't read a lot of Hubbard science fiction, so I can't comment too much on it, except, for, of course, for Battlefield Earth, which, you know, isn't really that great of a book. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of Scientology steeped in, you know, in baked into Battlefield Earth. Uh, and not just the obvious stuff. There's a lot of non-obvious Scientology stuff in there, too. So, um, and the Mission Earth series, that 10-volume decology that Hubbard wrote in the 80s. Um, these are not good books. Uh, as far as um, the, the things that come to mind for me that actually have critical acclaim that L. Ron Hubbard wrote are not science fiction. There's a horror story called uh, Fear that Stephen King has praised and that has received some critical acclaim. It's not that good, but it's, you know, but people have, some some horror people have liked it. I didn't really care for it. Um, and then there is a book called Final Blackout, which I guess Heinlein had some praise for, and that is a book about leadership and command and and the, um, the sort of the vagaries of command. And if you want to know, you know, some of Hubbard's command philosophy and stuff, you can check that out. I should actually probably go back and revisit that because I haven't read it in decades. I read it when I was in Scientology and I was impressed with it when I read it as a Scientologist. But there was a lot of Hubbard stuff I read that I was impressed with that I've looked back on and went, oh, my God, what was I thinking? So 
don't know what to say about that now. I'd have to go back and revisit it. Might be worth an analysis, actually, uh, uh, and because it is so closely aligned with how Hubbard thought of leadership. Pre-Dianetics and pre-Scientology. He wrote it, I think, in the 30s or 40s. Okay, so, um, yeah. DJ Better asks me, are you frustrated with the seemingly... Uh, See, with Scientology wins with the Danny Masterson case, do you think there are some underhanded shenanigans going on? Um, okay, I do not think there are underhanded shenanigans going on. I think all the shenanigans that are going on are quite obvious, quite overhanded, right in our face. The lawyers are saying all the things that Miscavige wants them to say and, you know, and all that. We definitely know there are underhanded shenanigans going on. I, I'm, I'm just being facetious there. There absolutely are because we know that that's the entire basis of the lawsuit, the civil lawsuit that these women, the Danny Masterson's victims, are bringing against the church and against him is for the stalking and the harassment and the fair gaming, that those are all underhanded shenanigans. But as far as the wins in the courtroom... Um, no, it has to do with the arbitration, and this is something Cyprian and I have gone into detail about. I've tried to help break this down on my podcasts with Cyprian for you guys, and it, maybe it's a little technical, but basically it comes down to the fact that the courts deal with arbitration in a very rote way, and Scientology is not being seen as the you know criminal operation that it is, and the courts have a long history with arbitration and they love it. They love getting stuff out of the court system and over to arbitration where somebody else is dealing with it. So, um, cause they're overloaded. The courts are completely overloaded. They always are. They never have enough time to get the job done adequately. And so if they can offload their case files, you know, if a judge or lawyers can do that so that they don't have to deal with it and some, it can be a private matter. They do. And they love it. And so the system is kind of built to push cases to that. And religious arbitration is just another form of mediation or arbitration. And so the, they don't really see a whole big difference there. And by necessity, they have to assume that the arbitration is going to be objective, that it's going to be mediated in a fair manner. They have to assume that in order for the whole thing to work at all. Otherwise, every single mediation or arbitration would have to be overseen. And instead of lessening the court's work, you're doubling it. And that's not going to fly because that's not why this whole thing was, was put together in the first place. So it's that kind of thing going on that... It's the banality of evil, you know. It's the banality of the stupidity of the ignorance of it all that keeps the that 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 creates these kind of setbacks, and the fact that Cyprian and I have gone over and we've tried to go over it in some detail in our shows, how it is that the lawyering is not up to up to scratch. It's it's very poor lawyering, and or I should I should be kinder. It's not all very poor lawyering. There's actually some pretty good lawyering going on in the Luis Garcia case, but um, according to my friend Cyprian, who is a lawyer, but um, but it's but the you know the deck is a little stacked against them from the get go on contract law and on mediation or arbitration law, and that's what we're seeing. And we have um, said over and over again that there that the bias in the United States towards religious groups is also baked into the system. So they tend to get a pass a lot faster than they should. And so abusive groups like Scientology who take advantage of that religious status, um, you know, there, there's just a high bar to, to take them on in a courtroom. And we need better lawyers. We really, really do. Okay. Um. Okay, let's see here. Scientology is the Seinfeld of religions. Yeah. Okay, good. That's da, 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 da. nothing wrong with Brexit. I voted for Brexit. Okay, cool. Uh, ah, had nothing to do with immigration. Everything to do with how the EU worked. Yep, I get it. I definitely get that. I know that there are people who have lots of very strong opinions on that, on the logistics and issues involved with uh, working with the EU. I get that. Not saying it's legit. I don't know. I haven't dived into all the details of that. I've heard um, uh, a lot of extreme words from both sides of that argument. Okay. Um, 
All right. This guy has no idea about the UK and shouldn't comment. Stick to the USA. Yeah, I do have some idea about the UK. Jesus Christ. All right. Um. <laughs> okay. Xcyan asks, do you think Big Bird from Sesame Street is brainwashing five-year-olds? No. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I think Ted Cruz is a bit of an ass, though. I, I really do. Calling Sesame Street government propaganda is, uh, boy, that is awesome. Okay. Um, see, this is what I'm talking about. Hilarious that you think the UK is the only European power to oppress people. Read up on Belgium and the Congo. This is what I'm talking about. Where did I use the word only? I didn't. I said the UK has a history of oppressing nations. As an empire, they do. I didn't say they're the only European country that did that. Jesus. People are so amazing sometimes. Uh, okay. Guror, with the holidays approaching, what's your favorite holiday-themed horror movie? Halloween. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there was some, um, oh, holiday, oh, in terms of Christmas holiday, probably. Um, there was a Krampus movie. Maybe it was called Krampus? I can't, I can't remember. Uh, but it was pretty good. Pretty good, pretty good Christmas horror movie. I, that, I think that was the one I, I'll go with. Um, yes, thank you, Molly, for noticing that. Um, okay. So, ah, Henny has a question. Um, do you think if you were taught critical thinking as a child, you would have been susceptible to Scientology's bullshit? I would have been less susceptible, Henny. But, um, but the thing about, but actually, this is a really good question. Thank you for asking me this, because let me comment on this a little bit. You can teach critical thinking to children, and it's vital that we do that. It will help more children question the childhood indoctrination that they receive from their parents as well and their church and their other uh, institutions or sports groups or clubs or other things they get involved in. It will help. But we cannot ever lose sight of the fact that the entire context of a child's life is authority figures all around them telling them how to think and what to think about the world at large. So there, it, it's a little bit, I, just, I only wanted to comment on this because I wanted to say it's a little bit of a pipe dream to imagine that by teaching critical thinking, we're going to deal with all of those problems because we're not. Children are, um, they're little sponges and they're extremely susceptible to lots and lots of indoctrination from lots and lots of places. And if that indoctrination is steeped in pseudoscience or false ideas, objectively false ideas, then, and that's given to them by authority figures, they're not necessarily going to, you know, know to question that. Um, and parents don't want their kids, and we shouldn't really try to set up a situation where every single thing that the child is told is questioned. You know, it's already bad enough with all the why this and why that and why the other thing. Um, you know, we do need them to follow instructions when you tell them to look out for the car or, you know, get your hand off the hot stove. So, so there's a little interplay here between the authority structure of, you know, what we need kids to listen to and when versus when we want to develop and foster good critical thinking skills. And the balance of that is, is hard. It's, it's a hard thing to, to find, to, 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 um, sort of calibrate that for every kid because every kid's going to be a little different in that regard. I mean, th this education thing is a big, big deal. Um, a lot more so than I can, than I could easily comment on in this format, but I didn't want to throw that out there because I thought that was a good question, Henny. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> da, 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 da. I love all the UK back and forth now. I, I didn't mean to spark all that. And I'm, I, I'm sorry if I pushed a bunch of people's buttons. I was not what I was trying to do. I was just trying to comment on the, on the extremism of it. Um, you know, clearly there are very strong opinions about this though, aren't there? Okay. Let's see here. Um, 
Yeah, the dark side of the First Amendment. That's a that's a good way of putting that. Um, yeah, thanks, Gurror. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that, Danny Masterson thing. We should do that. Um, what are my plans once I get my degree? They're a little open right now, but what's being kind of for what what I'm thinking with right now, and the sort of where I'm thinking about going. I'm not sure exactly how to do this. But what I want to do, what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to be I, I get pretty serious about this fight for the rights of us former members to be heard in academia. Right now, um, it is not a small thing. Oh, thank you, Guru, for that additional super chat. I really appreciate that support today. Thank you. Um, you know... Whether you agree with me ideologically or even what I have to say about Scientology or not, I don't care. You know, former members, all former members, whether they're Scientologists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Moonies, you know, uh, Hasidic Jews, whatever your former group is that you are now trying to talk about or speak out against, if they abused you, you should be heard. You have a right to be heard. And... Social media is okay, but it's very flash in the pan. It's very, you know, it's it's there, it's over. Um, mainstream media is a little longer in duration, but again, tends to be, you know, like you get Leah's show. That was the biggest hit we've had. It was three seasons, won Emmys, huge deal, but it's past now. Like, it's, it's there. People can see it on Netflix, but all the hype about it is kind of past. Going clear, same thing. So we have to keep this thing going in order for people to, to hear about it, right? It's flash in the pan. Mainstream media kind of comes and then goes and moves on to the next thing. Academia is where you have this sort of long-term permanent record of people who are constantly going back through the old stuff, sifting through, you know, work is built on that, that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it, you know, my analogy isn't perfect here, but, but my, my, my thinking isn't perfect on this. But basically what I'm trying to say is that academia is important, that the record of what is in academia is important. And right now, all of sociology and all of religious studies, when it comes to getting into looking at groups like Scientology, Moonies, Mormons, JWs, etc., sects or cults, sectarian studies, when these guys get into that, they don't listen to us. They don't, that they, they, by, by their, they, they sort of dogmatically don't listen to us and they won't and they won't listen to or consider what we have to say. And there's a whole camp, there's a whole bunch of these people. This is a problem and it's a problem I'd like to help solve or try to contribute to solving or working at pushing back on at least because us, us cult survivors need to be heard and there is not, there are just not enough people I think I can count on one or two hands the number of people who are actively in academia working and pushing back against that bullshit. And um, and so that's a fight I'm thinking about taking on. And um, so you've been hearing me talk about that lately. Um, okay, let's see here. Just kind of cruising right along. It's a great questions today. Um, let's see here. Oh, okay, great. Xion asks, how did you like your Sensibly Speaking podcast with Jen Kiaba? What did you like the best? Yeah, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. Uh, she is, she is, uh, it was really great to talk to somebody who really understood all the things I do <laughs> and could talk intelligently about them. I mean, wasn't that fun? And she had such great things to contribute and say and talk about with her, with the Mooney experience that she had and the life experience she had and the way of, of looking at that. She was great. Um, as far as uh, what, what did I like best? I liked the whole interview. I, I didn't really have a best uh, with that. I, I just enjoyed the talk. I'm looking forward to having her on again in the future. Um, Nick Bravo, I'm wondering if it's worth it to me to get a master's in sociology or something despite not thinking much of a university academics is a master's and a doctorate something still highly regarded yeah it is it's work it is and it is they are highly regarded they they're you know it's it's way more expensive than it should be you know I'm, i've got a student loan out now i am not enjoying that but um you know so so it's not 
it, it is overpriced education. I will definitely say that. And I'm not talking about my program. I'm talking about in general, all around, right? I actually think I got a pretty good deal on my program, all things considered, but it's still costly. Um, I could never afford to go do with a four-year degree and stuff if I hadn't been able to jump the line. I, I you know, forget it. This wouldn't be happening. But, um, but I think it's worth it. And I think it's worth it because there's a discipline to learning that it really can't be achieved any other way. If I hadn't gone through this program, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to even say that because, you know, I thought I was doing research before <laughs> and I was doing okay, but not like I can do research now, you know, and it really did make that big of a difference. It's huge, huge difference. Uh, and, um, and, and like I said, sort of the discipline of it, the rigor of it, the fact that you can't just throw out ideas and they're just true because you said them, you have to actually back them up and learn how to do that and write clearly and, and lucidly and well. So, um, so I've been having a lot of fun with it as far as that goes. I mean, I didn't feel like fun at the time, but in retros, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, God, that was rough, but I'm glad I did it. You know, it's kind of one of those sort of things. So there's a there's a little bit of a of a pride factor too. The only thing I think I just read this the other day, and I and I wanted to say something about it. The only thing I think is really a bummer about um, academics or some academics, some professionals in the fields, um, sociology and psychology. I can comment on specifically here are that some people get through the degrees or get their degrees, have to do all the reading, do all the work, write the papers, and then they, all, then they never want to read another book again. They never want to write another paper again. They never want to do any more research. They don't want to go into all that. They, they're done with all that. Oh, I'm done with all that reading. I think that attitude is what kills our society and kills our professions in terms of the growth and, and, and learning that is continuing that I, that is an important thing to continue doing as a professional. And I hope I never adopt that attitude. I hope after I get this degree, I keep learning, keep reading, keep studying, because the, the, there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of work out there to do. And once you, one of the things that you, the, the humbleness for me, and I think others who get a degree, is you really do learn quickly if you at all have a, a head on your shoulders, you learn very quickly how little you actually know and how much there is to know and how little you're ever going to know. Like out of the whole slice of the, of the whole pie, you know, you're going to get a little piece no matter how much you work. And so it really does become a matter of picking your battles and focusing in on the thing that you're super, super interested in because you have to at this point and it's and it's good to do that but it's also humbling and and i think that's the right way for education to be i think that's really important so all right um so just a couple comments on that i guess hope that was useful um Yeah, David Brown asks, I'm wondering what you think of Marcy Hamilton's case before the California Supreme Court. Several lawyers have said she should have attacked neutrality rather than the First Amendment. I agree. I think that her case was not well thought through as far as the, the context in which she was making it. In other words, good argument, wrong place to make it. Um, Marcy is a really smart person. I had her on my show. I interviewed her. She's, you know, I don't have any bad things to say about Marcy as, as a person or anything like that, but strategically or tactically, bad move. And that's according to other lawyers, right? That's not my thing. I don't, I can't make legal judgments that way. That's why I bring in Cyprian and, and read as I think you read Tony's, uh, a blog article on that. And uh, yeah, you know, and that's what I mean by bad lawyering is sometimes you can have good lawyers make bad cases because they don't think it through or they're approaching it from the wrong way or they're they don't do the, the research. That's the big that's one of the biggest problems with the lawyers that have taken on Scientology is they just they're they're fucking arrogant. They just fail to realize what they're taking on. And they, um, or they're just not, they don't have the time to do the work or to do the research to dig in at the level that they really need to in order to understand what they're taking on. And so they don't get that Scientology's lawyers are going to, you know, apply 
scorched earth, uh, every delay tactic, everything you can do. But they're going to do it with vigor and vim, and, and, and they're going to do it with, with a lot of thought. And you're going to have to be really clever to outwit them. And so far, that hasn't really been the case with the lawyers that have been found to bring cases against Scientology, for the most part, not, not across the boards. There has been some amazing lawyering in the past against Scientology. So I'm, so I'm not trying to blanket statement everybody who's ever taken on Scientology. I'm just saying that in these recent cases, uh, you know, with Valerie Haney and with the victims of Danny Masterson, it's been extremely frustrating to watch the, the, the failures in the courtroom. And some of that goes back to the lawyering. So that's all we really mean by that. And uh, yeah, thanks, Shimoda, yeah, bringing out the, the Brexit madness. I, I, yeah, I, I did not realize that was even going to be a thing. So um okay guru roar getting a lot of questions for you today this is great thanks for that um, that super chat apart from independent scientologist uh nexium in the process how many offshoots still use hubbard's methodology of indoctrination for their organization oh a bunch um how about the forum landmark landmark forum almost pure scientology in there uh, derived from, you know, via Est to Landmark to Forum to, you know, Landmark Forum. I think now it's Landmark International. They've rebranded so many times. It's ridiculous. Uh, there are still, um, yeah, then there's also a group um, down in South Africa. There's, um, oh, God, I forgot the name of that group. There's a few. There's, I mean, I've been made aware of in the last couple of years, I've had people throw at least five other Scientology offshoots my direction. It's, it's crazy. I mean, there's just thousands of these things out there and you just really, it, it's whack-a-mole. Every time you think you got one, two more pop up. I mean, there it's, ugh. Um, oh, what an interesting question. Would I be in favor of Texas seceding from the U.S.? No, I'm kind of Abe Lincoln on that. I, I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, we stay, stick together or we die separately. I, I really don't see a, I could see a future where the United States breaks up. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. But it's not a future I want or, or something that I think would be a good thing for the world or for us. Um, yeah, just don't think that's a good idea. Um, going to try to shorten some of these up because I want to try to catch up on, on some of this stuff that I missed. Is Troll 2 worse than Jim Cotta? That's a damn good question. Um, wow. Oh. I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'm going to punt. Ugh. They're they're both equally bad. They are really horrible movies. Really horrible. <sighs> uh okay, Shimoda, saw your podcast this week. Great show by the way. Thank you. And when she said she pretended the first X years of her life never happened, that hit home. You too, did you internalize shame too? No, I have not pretended that my life didn't happen. I, I, I haven't done that. I think, I, I, I think I've been anti-denial. I think I've tried very hard to, to, to kind of look very hard at every point of my life and just own it. Um, I think that's why I came out speaking loud and proud right from the beginning is because I was trying to own the experience and be responsible for it and, and see over time over time, I started seeing my own responsibilities for things, too, that it wasn't all just a one-way victim flow to me. I had also victimized others. I had to start dealing with that issue. Um, and there was some – so maybe at the beginning, there was some denial going on in terms of how I had abused others or contributed to Scientology's abuse of others. And that was a slow process. That's a little bit of a slow thing to, to take on. I think that's true for most ex-members. I think we have to deal with what was done to us first before we can start getting the perspective of what we did to others. But, you know, I, I know everybody's different that way, too. Um, I don't know. That's kind of how I think about it in response to your question. Um, you know, did I, would I say I internalized shame? Yeah, I'd say I did that. Yeah, you know. 
Uh, Jane Standen Bolton. The go-to miscavige interview is the Koppel one, but there's another slightly later pre-recorded one. Clips of it are going clear. Do you know anything about it, where it can be seen? Yes, there was that interview that was done, um, and there was some footage taken inside RTC and some pictures and stuff. I don't know where that can be seen, though. I'd have to Google around for that like you guys would have to. I I, I don't have it uh, myself. And, yeah, I just know that it exists, but I haven't seen that one. I'm really glad you guys liked that podcast I posted yesterday, by the way. I, I took a chance and said, hey, let's collaborate. Let's do a, let's do a chat. And she was awesome. I, I really liked, uh, liked that talk with her. Um, whatever happened to Paula White, Trump's spiritual advisor? You know, I don't know. Kind of don't care. Um, hopefully bad things. I, I really don't have good things to say about Paula White. I, I don't find her, her, her brand of grift to be uh, at all appealing or uh, anything I, I ever want to give a pass to. I think she's disgusting. Have I ever cried until I threw up? No, no, I haven't done that. Um, she went on strike and strike and strike and strike. Yeah, there you go. Um. How do you think people would be able to interview Miscavige, if at all? Yeah, I don't think they could. Miscavige is definitely not open to being interviewed these days. Um, yeah, there you go. Stalking, cyberbullying, yeah. Okay, well, I think I have caught up on the questions here. I'm at the bottom. Up. Oh, wait, yep, there we go. Oh, Jims, thank you for that. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for that super chat. That is quite nice. Thank you. Um, very nice. Indeed. Okay, uh, let's see here. Do they still do Est? No, Est turned into Landmark Forum. That's uh, Est kind of evolved into that as far as as far as I know. That's the case. Hey, Steve. Nice to see you here. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah, when Aaron was talking about the path, he mentioned Landmark people were some of the consultants. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Okay, is there a theme to this live Q&A? No, there is not. When I do a live Q&A, it's just an open forum. It's ask me anything, I'll probably answer because I'm a foolish person. Uh, like, ask me about Brexit, I'll answer. Why? Because I'm an idiot, that's why. Uh, okay, it's uh, how is it there? Oh, it's uh, nice today. Weather's not too bad. It's getting chilly here, though. Er, er, chilly. Um... I saw a video of Dave Miscavige introducing a new e-meter with new features. Isn't that screwing with the tech? Yes, Gerroar, that's exactly what it's doing. But Miscavige gets to do all of it because he, he, has, a, he has a go-to get-away-with-anything line. And that line is, it's what LRH intended. It's what LRH always wanted. LRH instructed us to do this, and we're finally getting it done. As long as he says that, he can say he can make any change to Scientology he wants, and Scientologists will believe him. Okay, uh, AceX222, thank you very much for this super chat. You have to read Science and Sanity by Alfred Korzybski. It's Hubbard's biggest influence by far, and even John Atak hasn't managed to finish it. I, I have, uh, yes, I, I understand it's a little bit difficult to read. I will probably get around to it at some day. Um, Hubbard never read it, by the way. Um, he just had it explained to him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's close that, and um, I think we're going to start wrapping up. This has been fun, guys. I have really appreciated your super chats and support. Thank you very much. Always good uh, for that. Maybe uh, I will be able to uh, get that new laptop for the show at some point. Keep it. Keep the support coming. It's uh, that's that's where it'll go toward. And um, yes. Very good. Yeah, I don't know where that, that Miscavige interview is either. I've only actually seen photos of it, I, I so I would need to, to dive into that. All right. Um, yes. Thank you, Henny. Thank you for that comment. Um, thank you. I do know that's actually what keeps me going. Because there are some days, believe it or not, where I kind of wonder why I'm still doing this. <laughs> 
Um, one thing you guys will see, let me throw this out at you as to, to end off on this one, right? And this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, one thing you're going to see after I get this degree done and I finish off a couple videos that I've been promising for a really long time that are going to get done, that's pretty much going to be the, I'm not going to be really talking too much about Scientology after that. I'm going to get some video work done and I'm going to be kind of done. I'm going to move on in terms of not just talking about Scientology. If I have to be that guy, I want to be that cult guy, not that Scientology guy. That's the direction I want to move in. So, um, so there we go. All right, guys. Thanks very much for coming around. This was a lot of fun this week. I always love talking to you guys. And on that happy note... Um, I'll see you next weekend. Bye-bye.